You are Locked On the NBA, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. It is Locked On NBA, David Locke along with Kevin Pelton, ESPN insider extraordinaire, and the man who puts out the great win-loss projections for every NBA team in the middle of August, and everyone debates it. His Shoney system with real plus-minus added to it, it's most famously got ridiculed by the New York Post, and the Knicks have still never been good since you said they were going to be bad. So, um, is there anything, have you been, have you had anything similar to the New York Post coming after you this year? No, it hasn't been that that bad this year. I mean, and then last year with the Lakers being projected, you know, uh, uh, ninth in the West in the summer version, that uh, that definitely inspired a lot of response from Lakers fans. Uh, yeah, but uh, this year, not not quite, I would say, is controversial. I guess Philadelphia being where they are in the East, we'll get to that maybe a little bit, but uh, no players, no coaches have weighed in as yet. All right, so here's what I want to do. In our first segment today, we'll talk about the methodology, how the system's different than some others. And then in the second segment, we'll talk Western Conference. And in the third segment, we'll talk Eastern Conference. So 538 does a little of this, just to give a shout out to some people who I think are working hard. BB Index does some kind of stuff like this, or B-Ball Index, I think it is. Um, There's some models. What separates what you're doing and why do you feel like yours has been, frankly, so successful over the years? Well, I mean, I think a couple of things. First off, it's the only one that's built largely, like primarily on ESPN's real plus minus, which is generally proven quite good in terms of, you know, future predictions. Uh, the, the 538, you know, for a while switched to a version that wasn't using RPM at all and, and saw weaker results after that and started reincorporating it. Uh, you know, the, the people index Jacob Goldstein's model, uh, as you mentioned, it, it's his version that is kind of similar to, to RPM, but not exactly the same. So there's not, uh, it is long a track record of it. Uh, the other aspect of it that differentiates, I guess, would be just the minutes projections and projecting games played. And, you know, that's something that all of us are kind of subjectively taking a stab at. So, you know, I think that, uh, you know, the, the, the different ways you do that can, can re- result in, uh, different outcomes. So, Paul George, you have at 78 games, and yet Kawhi Leonard, you have 62. I think Mike Conley, you have at about 62. Uh, those have huge impacts. Why, how do you determine how many games somebody is going to play in an upcoming season? If I remember you have Yusuf Nurkic at 35 games. How do you determine these things? So it's a combination of a formula and then just kind of my subjective adjustments. The formula is based on games missed over the previous three seasons and really penalizes heavily if you've missed a high number of games over that period of time. Or, you know, if you're someone who misses like 20 games a year, then you're probably going to be rejected to miss about 20 games the following season. So most part that works pretty well for guys who do have a you know difficulty staying on the court for extended periods. I think the Kawhi number is, is pretty close to what I would subjectively predict. 
Uh, sometimes it doesn't work as well. One of the reasons that Philly projection that I mentioned, you know, not to spoil that, is that Ben Simmons' projection is for you know somewhere in the neighborhood, I think, 66 games because of the fact that he still has on there the 82 he missed as a rookie, even though he, he hasn't missed much time the last two seasons. Uh, and then on top of that, when there's a player who has a known injury going into the season that we know will sideline over a period of time, I'm just kind of subjectively, based on injury reports, trying to project that. And that's, that's the case with Nurkic. Paul George, uh, perhaps at some point that will be the case if it becomes you know 100% clear that he's going to miss the start of the season after his shoulder surgery. I think that's the expectation, but right now it's not 100%, so I'm kind of going to err on the side of you know not, not making an adjustment until, uh, until it's clear that that needs to be done. What would you say in the years you've done this makes your system that you're most confident about your system? And what would you say is the thing that still makes you cringe a little bit about your own system? I mean, I think the thing that makes me most confident is just the the track record. And, you know, the, I, I think people often want to evaluate projections based on whether they look the same as what they subjectively are thinking about it. And I think, you know, number one, if, if that's all you're doing, then projections can't add any value. You can't learn anything new from them. If, you're just comparing them to your expectations. Uh, but also, that's just not a very good way to evaluate because the season hasn't happened yet. We don't know what's going to be right and what's going to be wrong. That Knicks projection looked wrong to me when it came out in, in, in 2000, uh, I think that was 13, 14. And uh, that was back under the old Shaney model that was a little different than this and not did not have as strong a track record, which is why I changed to using RPM as the, the primary basis of it. But, you know, at the beginning of the year, you would have said, well, that's a terrible projection because it did look so far off from what they had done the previous year. But then you look at it with the benefit of hindsight and it looked pretty good. And you want to do that, you know, across all 30 teams. And that's, you know, kind of the, the way you want to evaluate. So uh, what makes me nervous, I think, is the fact that, you know, coaching is very difficult to model in, in a projection system like this. I, I don't want to say impossible, but I don't have a good method to do it yet. And there are certain teams that have consistently tended to outperform their projections. Uh, San Antonio is naturally one of those, you know, aside from the year where Kawhi Leonard was injured most of the season. Uh, other than that, I think they've been six games over their RPM projection each of the other three years that we've published those on the site. And then Portland would be another one that fairly consistently the last few years has gone over their projection. Terry Stott's doing masterful work there. The win totals seem low. You know, like the winner of the West is 54 wins and the winner of the East is 51 wins. Why are those numbers so low? So part of that is just the conservative nature of projection systems. If you want to try and minimize the errors, you're going to bring those projections back towards, you know, 41 wins, a 500 record as, as much as, you know, as much as you can. But the other aspect of it is, you know, this, this season is different from past years for one key reason. So an adjustment I introduced last year and, and refined a little bit this year is players are projected differently based on whether they've stayed with the same team or changed teams. And if you're changing teams, your projection a is kind of regressed towards what your box score stats say it should be. I use the output of my you know, Shaney projection system that is, is for player projections, and that's strictly box score based. It doesn't include the plus minus component that's in real plus minus. And the reason for that, I think, is because of the fact that that component tends not to carry over as much from one situation to the other 
your box score stats tend to be much more consistent when you change teams. But the other element of it is just if you change teams, your projection drops no matter what. There's an element that consistently players tend to play worse when they change teams, uh, you know, worse than you would otherwise project them to do based on their past performance. So because of the fact that there has been such an unprecedented level of turnover across the league this year, I think that's a big reason that some of those top teams, you know, especially ones that did have a lot of turnover, the Clippers and Lakers most notably, and I think the Jazz probably fall in that category as well. Uh, those teams, you know, that, that was a drag on their projections, the fact that players are projected to decline when they change teams. That's so interesting because I actually have this new belief that continuity is overrated. I mean, I, you know, I, can't totally, I haven't totally squared it with, you know, whether you can find those results at the team level, but certainly at the player level, it, it is pretty clear that, you know, you, even stars – you know, even the guys who whose role probably isn't changing that much because of the fact that their their ability determines their role and not the, the players around them. Even those guys tend to play worse when they change teams. And the other one, you know, I always have generally believed is that teammates actually have limited impact on very few teammates. Let me rephrase this: have uh, impact on individuals' uh, efficiency. That players are just as efficient as they are. Uh, when they use a possession and who they're playing for and what team they're playing for, I actually think has limited impact on that. Am I crazy? We don't fully agree on this one. I mean, I think that, you know, the extent to which a player's role is a factor is maybe a little bit overstated, particularly because, you know, it generally tends to be used as an excuse rather than an explanation for why a player is good. So, you know, if a player is below average, you say, oh, it's because he's in a bad situation. And then you don't conversely make the same adjustment to a player who is above average and is a good, it is a good situation. But I still think that it definitely matters. Clearly, your efficiency goes down when you take on a larger role. There's a lot of evidence of that, that, you know, on average, you have to take a lot more difficult shots. But the nice thing with, you know, a well-calibrated player metric is, your value should still be the same, generally speaking. You know, it's just a matter of, you know, whether your skill set is appropriate for that role or not. Interesting. All right, we're going to dig into it. He's Kevin Pelton of the ESPN Insider of the Great Projection System here, his Shoney system, the real plus minus. You can get him at, at K Pelton on Twitter. You should follow him. You should read his stuff. He does great work. Uh, and we'll get into the actual projections as we continue. If you are a football fan, Locked on NFL is up and running with the scout Matt Williamson, host Brian Peacock. It's the new rebuilt Locked on NFL for your NFL season. Make sure you go grab it on your perf- excuse me, on your preferred podcast provider. That's easy for me to say. Starting in the Western Conference, you are a buyer on the James Harden-Russell Westbrook combination, it looks. In in the regular season, I, I think so. I mean, you know, two things at play here. One, despite, you know, trading Chris Paul for Russell Westbrook, the Rockets brought back basically the rest of their rotation intact. Uh, I think their next biggest you know, addition is probably Tyson Chandler is a backup center. So, you know, the continuity factor works in their favor in this case. And then the other factor is, you know, 
even with his projection taking a little bit of a hit, Westbrook still comes out better than Chris Paul would have because of the fact that you know he's expected to play so many more minutes uh, based on his past gen, you know track record of durability as compared to Chris Paul. So my offensive ratings, rating system had Russell Westbrook as the player that had the biggest negative impact on his team of any offensive player last year. How do you weigh his incredible inefficiency last year in Oklahoma City to what you expect him to do this year? I mean, I think he probably will benefit to some extent from playing a slightly smaller role in Houston and having, you know, another elite shot creator alongside him, James Harden. I mean, we have, you know, seen that his efficiency the last couple of years is down from, you know, where it was when he played with Kevin Durant. It's maybe a little bit difficult to, uh, you know, uh, separate that from the, the fact that he's passed his prime age and probably has physically declined a little bit since then. But, uh, you know, I think he will be a little bit more effective. And then, uh, you know, the the two having those two shot creators on the court at all times in Westbrook and Harden, I think, you know, at least one of those two on the court at all times should really boost the efficiency of Houston's role players. So I can use a bunch of numbers to explain, well, as much as I really like Denver, and by the way, I'm kind of on board on the Houston thing. I think Russell's going to be a very different player there. But I, I, I can I can give you all these things on, on Denver. Um that for the four previous years, they were 26, 25th, 30th, 21st defensively, and all of a sudden they became 11th. There seemed to be an unnatural amount of three-pointers missed, and there were really an unnatural amount of three-pointers missed against them in the clutch. I think teams shot 20% against the Nuggets in the clutch last year. And yet, uh, I also think they started early with an easy schedule that kind of then worked to their advantage and they gained momentum, and then their playoffs were meh. Uh. But yet, you have them as .2 games off the Rockets, and you have the Rockets and Nuggets as considerably better than the rest of the Western Conference. Explain. So they really benefit from that continuity factor. 88% of their minutes projected to be played by returning players, the highest in the league by you know, a substantial margin. And you know, I think, I think if, they, if we were just rerunning the 2018-19 season with the Nuggets, I would expect them to decline a little bit. They did you know, because of the, the, what you mentioned in terms of clutch situations. They outperformed their point differential last year, which is you know, why they were in the mix with uh, you know, Golden State for the top spot in the Western Conference, despite not even having the second-best point differential in the conference during the regular season. But I think another big factor here is, uh, aside from Paul Millsap, who was a really important part of that defensive improvement last year, this was an incredibly young team. I mean, you know, Jamal Murray and Nikola Jokic are their two best players, probably, depending on you know what you think of Millsap's defense. And uh, at least they're their two top shot creators, and those guys are remarkably young for those roles. Murray, in particular, I think stands a good chance of improving. And then, you know, the addition of Jeremy Grant means now, even if Millsap takes a step back or misses some time, they're going to have another quality defender to plug into that power forward spot alongside Jokic. So since I've become a non-believer in continuity, this is really interesting to me, and this is just like a gut, and you have it numerically saying it's true, and I have a gut saying that Boston last year, Utah last year, a bunch of these teams that have the same guys coming back again, it's just not the same group that leaves. Like things happen in the offseason. Malik Beasley, when Gary Harris has a much better year than he had last year and is suddenly playing 32 minutes a night, Malik Beasley is not going to be okay with 16 minutes. And Torrey Craig, if Michael Porter Jr. starts clicking in, is not going to be okay with not playing. And I just, and that the, the urgency that Denver had the year before when they lost on the 82nd game for the playoffs isn't going to, like, am I, am I just making stuff up? Or what's your thoughts on how this weighs against the numbers? 
I don't think you're making stuff up. I mean, certainly, you know, that's, I, I don't think when you bring back the same group that it's always the same degree of chemistry that you had previously. But you know, I think that depends to some extent. I mean, if, if the expectations are in Denver, hey, we're going to win 55 games, we're going to be, you know, we're going to have the West best record. Now that the Warriors aren't the same as they were last year, then, yeah, I think there's a, a strong possibility of them being disappointed, particularly if they get off to a slow start. But you know, I think if, if expectations, you know, if, if instead all the talk in the preseason is about the Lakers and the Clippers and the teams that they've built and, you know, maybe the Rockets with their stars and, you know, the Nuggets are able to play the nobody believes in us card, then, you know, that that's a way that they can avoid that uh, that fate. You have the Clippers at 48 win, the Jazz at 47, and the key to this is you have Kawhi Leonard at 62 games and Mike Conley at something awfully close to that, maybe 64. If those teams are at full strength, how do they rank up compared to Denver and Houston? I think pretty close in that case. I mean, obviously Kawhi is a – I haven't gone through with playoff rotations yet, which is something that 538 does as part of their model. That's, that's a cool thing that they do. But uh, I think pretty close in that scenario – uh, I, that closes up a lot of the gap. The the, the Jazz, in particular, you know, it's a, a sizable drop off to their backup sub point guard behind Conley. So, you know, the Clippers, even though they have admirable depth, uh, you know, some of their role players, Rodney Magruder in particular, don't come out outstanding in the RPM projections. So. You know, that helps both of those teams. And then just also, you know, particularly in Kawhi's case, being able to increase his minutes as well. The Dallas Mavericks are a playoff team, Kevin Pelton? Well, first off, I mean, you know, the, the nature of this is the West is deep enough that I don't think any, you can say anyone outside of maybe the top two is a, a certain playoff team going into the season. But, uh, yeah, I think this is one that makes more sense the deeper you look into it. They're a team that out underperformed their point differential last year pretty substantially. They had the differential of about a 38-win team. And it's fascinating because you look at Rick Carlisle's teams, there was this extended period where Dallas seemed to always outperform its point differential and you know their fans were furious anytime you did like the Hollinger power rankings that were based on point differential rather than winning percentage and you know they came out you know like 10th instead of the record being fifth in the league or something like that and then just the last two years this has gone the opposite direction conveniently when it has turned out in the favor of their uh, their draft tech I don't I don't know that Ricardo is actually like, you know, not doing the things that he used to do down the stretch to uh, get them victories. It's probably, it's probably just a case of luck or, you know, small sample size, but uh, it is kind of fascinating. So if you think of them as starting from a 38 win position, they're adding Chris Asforzinkas. They've upgraded, I think, their depth with the addition of guys like DeLon Wright and Seth Curry coming back and Bobon will be an interesting piece for uh, Carlo to find use for. And then you've got Luka Doncic, your best player is, you know, age 20, looks to be in better shape based on the photos we've seen of him this offseason. I, I think them being above 500 is certainly reasonable, even with the depth of the West. You have Portland, Sacramento, Minnesota, San Antonio, New Orleans, and Phoenix as virtually the same. Little slight differential, but I mean, from ranging from 34% to 22% playoff chances. Why is that so muddled together? I mean, I don't think it's surprising that it's muddled together. I think that some of those, some of the individual teams are surprising, but we know that the West is going to be, you know, extremely deep, and and likely that those last couple spots are going to be decided more by injuries and you know teams that outperform expectations than you know who goes into the season with the best roster. Phoenix is equal to New Orleans, and yet we're talking about the Pelicans. We're putting Zion on Christmas. I've heard them talked about a playoff team. Should we be talking about Phoenix more than we are? 
right now and in, in thinking them as the same as New Orleans? I mean, I would have to say if there was one projection I was probably the least confident in in all of these, it would probably be Phoenix at 38 wins. I mean, you know, I think you can like squint and make a case for it. They were decent last year when they had their core players together. Uh, you know, in the, the projections I did, I wrote about when they had Booker, Oubre, Bridges, and Aiton, who are, you know, basically their four best players who are coming back this season. When they had those four guys on the court, it was only 180 minutes, but they were they were slight positive in those 180 minutes. So, you know, you give them a competent point guard in Ricky Rubio and another floor space in Big and Dario Saric. I, they, I think they will probably be more competitive. I think 38 is pretty optimistic. Who is the team you actually feel most confident is better than your projection in the West? Uh, probably the San Antonio or Portland. Those the two teams we mentioned as having you know a track record of outperforming those projections. Both of them have lower projections than I think conventional wisdom would expect for both of those teams this year. Uh, you know they they both suffered some losses over the off season. It's interesting. I think Blazers fans feel probably a lot better about their off season than kind of the, the national consensus, and you know probably a lot of that difference has to do with Hassan Whiteside. If you're thinking that Damian Lillard can get him, you know, on board with the team concept and playing the way he did early in his Miami career when he was immensely productive on a permanent basis, then yeah, this could work out pretty well for them with him replacing Yusuf Nurkic for the first four, you know, months of the season or however long it takes for Nurkic to get back from that, uh, you know, really horrifying uh, compound leg fracture he suffered last season. Uh, if not, then they've lost, you know, Harkless and Aminu, probably their two best defensive players in the front court. Uh, those, they haven't really done a ton to replace those guys. They're counting on Zach Collins to, to step into a much larger role at power forward this season. I, I mean, there's a way that this can go, you know, south for them, and that I think this projection could be accurate. But you know, I think they, they are likely to beat it, given their, you know, top-end talent and, and the, the, the coaching that they have. Uh, San Antonio, I mean, similar thing where, you know, it was, it's fascinating. If you look at their plus-minus last year, their success was really driven by the second unit, not by the starters, not by, you know, when LaMarcus Aldridge and DeMar DeRozan were on the court, even though they tend to get most of the credit for it as their leading scorers. It was a lot about those backup lineups with Patty Mills and Davis Bertans and guys like that. Bertans is in Washington now, the result of their failed attempt to get Marcus Morris. Patty Mills probably slides into a smaller role this year with DeJounte Murray coming back at point guard to go along with Derek White, who had such a nice year in Murray's absence. So, you know, I think that's that could, uh, in the short term, hamper them. But at the same time, it's pop. He is Kevin Pelton. Make sure you follow him at K Pelton on Twitter. Read him on ESPN. Remember, your local favorite NBA team also has a podcast on the Locked On Podcast Network. The Philadelphia 76ers, you mentioned them a few times. They're they're really interesting, right? I mean, I'm not sure we actually have a complete understanding of what they're going to be other than really, really long and really, really long, tall. Uh, right. Why did they drop to third in the Eastern Conference? It's kind of fascinating because I mentioned this in the piece I wrote on ESPN Plus, but you know, for 27 of the 30 teams, I believe that they're within four wins of each other in the 538 model in mind. There, you know, there's a lot of correlation, a lot of overlap between what those two models are saying, and you know, that certainly makes you feel better about those results. And then there's this enormous gap between Philadelphia, who they have. Uh, second, I believe, in the entire league after Milwaukee with you know an average of 58 wins, and I have them with an average of you know like 46. So 
you know, uh, or 59, I guess 59 and 47. So it is a 12 win differential in both cases. Uh, one of those factors is the Simmons playing time, as I mentioned earlier. The other, another is Joel Embiid's games played. They don't really project games played specifically, or, you know, uh, the future injuries. And we know that Embiid is likely to miss some time this season. I think even just for load management, you know, after he played so many minutes last year and kind of seemed to wear down a little bit in the playoffs, uh, even though that was more illness than it was necessarily a physical issue, in the, at least against Toronto. Uh, and then I think the third factor here is just that, again, that, that adjustment for players changing teams. Two of their starters are new to the roster, now Horford and Josh Richardson. And, you know, Horford in particular, his projection takes a pretty big dip because of this. What is your ba- what is your basketball take on that roster? Not your numbers take. Like you're equally as good as just a basketball take as there is um and I think sometimes um that gets forgotten in just your analysis. We hear it a lot. I know it well cuz of the amount of times I talk, but what what's your what, what's your basketball take on them? I mean, my basketball take is to not know what to expect. I mean, I, I, anyone who I think is really confident in what the Sixers are going to be this year is, you know, probably falsely confident. I mean, it's just we've not seen a roster that looks quite like this in terms of, you know, the shortest player in their starting lineup is going to be Josh Richardson, who is like six six. I mean, that's that's very different in 2019. Very different at almost any point in NBA history, for that matter. Uh, you know, other than maybe like the Showtime Lakers when they had Michael Cooper at shooting guard or something like that. Uh, so, you know, it, and it's also, even though Al Holford is a good shooter and Josh Richardson is a good shooter, it's still not the kind of volume of three-point attempts that they had last year with, uh, you know, J.J. Redick in the lineup in particular. So, you know, I, how this all fits together, I, I want to see, you know, when they play Al Horford at center, uh, who's going to step in at power forward? Are they going to be able to find quality players? And, you know, because last year they were so much better with Joel Embiid on the court. I think that was a big part of the motivation for going out and getting Horford because you could play him when uh, Embiid was sitting. Uh, but, you know, then they don't necessarily. You, the problem is if you play Al Horford at center, you can't also play Al Horford at power forward as nice as that would be. Two of the more interesting projections this year are Boston losing Aaron Baines and Al Horford. Frankly, Utah missing Derek Favors. And whether these two of the best defensive teams in the league will still be two of the best defensive teams in the league, how do you figure that out? <laughs> well, you know, I, how they project that, uh, I would say that both of those teams, you know, decline defensively, but not necessarily precipitously. Uh, Utah is fourth if you look at the projected defensive rating. Boston is sixth. Um, you know, Boston is buoyed by the fact that Robert Williams has a really good defensive projection based on his limited minutes last year as a rookie. He was just a, a voluminous shot blocker. He also fouled a lot, so he's probably going to have to play a little bit different. You know, now that he gets more extended minutes alongside uh, newcomer Anis Cantor in that center rotation, who you know fairly obviously is going to be something of a defensive downgrade from those two guys, despite you know holding his own last year in the playoffs in Portland. Uh, you know, I think Utah. You know, a lot of it depends, you know, kind of how much time they, they end up playing big with, you know, whether it's Jeff Green or George Niang or, or possibly even in limited minutes, maybe at Davis at power forward and how much they're playing small with either William Bogdanovich or, or Joe Ingles in that spot. The, uh, you are allowed to have every free ride in Orlando, I believe, at this point. You can go to <laughs> Disney. They were, they're, they're a home first-round playoff team in your projections. Well, that doesn't really help me that much. I already was allowed to do that, as it turns out. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, 
Uh, yeah, I mean, that was one of the ones that stood out to me when I first did these. Now, you know, Orlando generally... Wait, my, my children the... just heard that and are now referring to you as Uncle Kevin, but that's okay. Don't worry about it. Okay. <laughs> uh, Orlando's generally been an above 500 team in the statistical projections, but, uh, you know, the, the model that I'm using is, is highest on them for sure. Uh they really got a lot better last season when they excised kind of the weakest parts of the rotation, Jerry and Grant at point guard. And they also had been playing Isaiah Briscoe there, who is no longer in the NBA. Uh, and, and went with, in that case, Michael Carter Williams. They'll also have Markel Fultz potentially in the mix as a backup point guard this year. And then, you know, at center, which will be interesting to see this year, it was Mo Bamba who got hurt. And that, that kind of forced Steve Clifford or maybe allowed him to play Kim Birch as the backup to Nikola Vucevic. And the defense was way better after they made that change. They did benefit from a lot of uh, poor opponent three-point shooting, something that's not likely to continue and something that RPM does adjust for. So, you know, that should be factored in. But, you know, they bring basically everyone back from last year's playoff rotation. And they add to that Alfa Rukamino, who, you know, if you put him as your third forward, as your sixth or seventh man, I guess if Terrence Ross is thinking of him as your sixth man, he's pretty overqualified for that spot after you know starting in the playoffs the last several seasons in Portland. I feel like Miami, Indiana, and Brooklyn are probably a little disappointed about being six, seven, eight, and verging on five hundred. Miami is about where I expected them to be. Uh, Indiana was probably one of the bigger surprises to me on the negative side. Uh, in terms of, you know, I liked a lot of what they did this season, this off season, just about everything they did, in fact, uh, but. You know, the, the fact that T.J. Ward in particular doesn't rate very well. Justin Holiday, they got very late and very cheap, doesn't project very well by RPM, especially as compared to the guys they lost in Boyan Bogdanovich and Thaddeus Young. That hurts them. Um, I, I would still, I wouldn't be surprised if they outperform that. I, I think they're more likely to be up in that 45, 46 range than the, you know, 42 range. Um, and then Brooklyn, you know, it, it's interesting. As much as they've improved in terms of star power, Obviously, Kevin Durant doesn't play this year. Uh, they were a team that probably was due for a regression either way, given how much they jumped up from, I believe, 28 wins in 2017-18 to 42 last year. Uh, you know, that that combination suggests that maybe they're, they're still a, way, a year away from legitimately contending in the East. All right, so let me ask my final question on this, and it's not directly related, but these we have ACL injuries and we have uh, Achilles tendon injuries on some fairly prominent players. What do the numbers say about the comeback from those? It's interesting because you know, I think people are much more devastated or, or terrified of the, the Achilles than the ACL. But you know, if you look at the numbers at this point, it's not really a, a substantial difference between those two. First off, in terms of times, time missed due to those injuries, you know, there hasn't been a player that's come back from an ACL injury faster than 11 months in the NBA and almost five years now. J.J. Hickson was the last one to do it when he was in Denver in 2014. Uh, so, you know, this idea that I think is still in our heads that this is like a nine-month injury, and that's sort of how Clay Thompson is talking about in his rehab, uh, it doesn't seem to be accurate. Now, you know, one of the issues with the ACL is there's often complicating factors with those injuries that players also will tear another ligament or tear their meniscus when they tear the ACL, and that, that can be one factor in it. And, but, you know, I think teams have wisely gotten more conservative with bringing those players back. And then, you know, even in terms of performance thereafter, I, I think one reason that people think of the ACL as kind of a, quote-unquote, I'm using air quotes here because neither of them are good, but the better of those two injuries is the fact that historically players have 
almost always suffered Achilles injuries in their 30s toward the tail end of their careers. So you'll see a lot of like scary-looking stats trotted out any time a player suffers an Achilles injury about the number of times that they never come back to play in the NBA again. Well, a lot of those times, those guys were already on the fringes of the league at that point, given their age and their ability. Uh, they probably weren't. You know, they they might have stuck onto a roster as a 14th man, and the Achilles is severe enough that, therefore, they don't get that opportunity. Whereas ACL injuries have historically tended to happen to players at much younger ages. So not only are they able to come back, they're able to improve after the ACL injury. And you think of their post-ACL self versus their pre-ACL self self and naturally they're better because they're they're in the prime of their career they've had an extended period of time to develop and you know you're not necessarily comparing them to what they could have been had they not had the injury my hot take is that golden state was the winner of the offseason because they didn't sign two guys with debilitating injuries is that fair I, I still think they would have been happy to do it with Kevin Durant because, you know, there, there, there are two ways to be effective in the league. Is Nate Silver broke this down several years ago on 538, and I think it's, you know, one of the, the simplest ways to think about basketball or really any salary cap sport that you can, or, or any sport, I guess. You can either be more efficient with your money or you can spend more money than your opponents. And... Kevin Durant's not re-signing Kevin Durant. Okay, maybe I can buy that it's not. It's going to allow them to be more efficient with their money, but signing Kevin Durant, re-signing Kevin Durant would have just allowed them to spend a lot more money than everyone else, and that was an advantage they no longer really have. Certainly this year, where they're hard capped after the D'Angelo Russell sign-in trade. Kevin Pelton, you do great work. It's always a pleasure. I look forward to seeing you soon. Thank you very much. Enjoy the WNBA playoffs, and uh, thanks for your time. All right, thanks for having me. He is Kevin Pelton. Follow him at at KPelton on Twitter. Send him a thank you for coming on. We greatly appreciate his time. And read his pieces on ESPN and ESPN Plus as well. This has been Locked on NBA. Adam and Anthony will be with you tomorrow for another edition as we have no offseason on Locked on NBA, part of the Locked on Podcast Network.